Hello and welcome to Unequal Sequel. I am Dave and I'm one of your two hosts for this new and exciting podcast. And I'm Rich and I'm also one of two hosts of this exciting podcast. Think of me as Murtar to Dave's Riggs. I'm too old for this shit and he thinks he's a loose cannon with bad hair. Think of me as Sam to Dave's Frodo. I don't know what I'm doing and he's got hairy feet. Think of me as Sully to Dave's Mike Wazowski. I'm big and hairy and he's got one eye. Think of me as Shrek to Dave's donkey. I'm really big and he talks a lot. Think of me as Pumba to Dave's Timon. He's skinny and talks a lot and my friends always stand downwind. The premise of Unequal Sequel is very simple. We ask our guests their best ever sequel, worst ever sequel, and finally their dream sequel. And of course, we often drift off and talk about other movie stuff and sequels in general or, you know, whatever comes into our heads, really. And also, I have to say this, we do slightly spoil movies, but they're mostly over 20, 25, 30 years old. So it's not our fault. Helen, I've just read on your Wikipedia that your first ever... I have a Wikipedia. Yeah. I, huh. Did you not okay, know that? Right? This is amazing. I mean, no, I think the last time I looked it up, it was, um, there was a Helen O'Hara from Dexy's Midnight Runners, um, which is a, she's, she plays violin. Oh. Uh, so I knew, I knew she had a Wikipedia page. I don't think I knew I did. But anyway, sorry. I, I assume it's right. Hopefully. It says journalist, Helen O'Hara. Correct. Good. Yeah. Good start. It's got where you're born. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Quite detailed. And there's a whole bit about your career. There's a quote. But it says your earliest memory was seeing Return of the mm. Jedi at the cinema. Is that correct? That's one of, I actually, I think my earliest cinema memory is actually Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. It was re-released. I wasn't around in yeah, 1937, just to be too. clear. <laughs> oh, yeah, really? That's my Yay. earliest cinema memory. I mean, my grand. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was, I, my dad took me to that. I think probably, probably because my sister had just been born and they wanted me out of the house for a yeah. minute and give my mum some peace, I would imagine. But yeah, I was, so I was about three or four. So I was a bit younger, I think, when I saw that than, Jedi, but Jedi is one of my first cinema memories. Yes. Is that the first sequel sure. you remember seeing? Yes, yes, it would be. But I hadn't seen the original. I hadn't seen Star Wars and I hadn't seen Empire. So I ended up seeing Jedi in the cinema and then Star Wars on TV probably like a year later. Mm. And then it probably took a couple of years to see Empire. Like I was really, you know, excited to see it and like frustrated that I hadn't because we didn't have a VCR even in those days. Yeah. So it took a little while. Yeah. It would have been Stuart Little too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Stuart Little was the first movie I ever saw in the cinema when I was younger. I I distinctly remember the second one coming out. Uh, I'm not sure if I actually saw that in the cinema either, strangely. Uh, But I I remember being very, very excited for that, having the memory of Stuart Little, one relatively fresh in my head, because I don't think there was some sort of ludicrous five or ten year gap between uh, the the two Stuart Little movies. No. And closely followed by Spider-Man 2. They are the, the two major instances in my childhood. I can remember being, oh my God, I'm, I'm so excited for this. I don't think I've seen Stuart Little 2. What happens is Stuart Little 2. I've seen the first one. I've definitely watched the first one. My little boy very much enjoyed it, but I've not seen the second one. Firstly, you're missing out on an exhilarating work of cinema. Uh, second, <laughs> secondly, what what happens in Stuart Little 2 is he's still, still living with um, the family that, that took him in. As an orphaned mouse. He meets a, a little bird. A little bird that can also talk. Obviously. And they they, they become friends. Uh, some would say closer. Closer than friends. They, they, they start uh, a courtship together. Uh, but this bird is on the run from a falcon. And the oh. falcon's evil. Very, very evil. And they just get up to all sorts of hijinks and, and shenanigans <laughs> across the city. No, I don't remember the first sequel I saw. 
I mean, we grew up with an age of VHS where like, you know, uh, Gremlins 2 maybe and things like that. I mean, I think I saw Gremlins 2 before I saw Gremlins 1. But the sequels were just a part of our life. They were always on telly. Yeah. They were always, you know, VHS. And maybe it was different for our parents. I remember being the most excited I was. I remember the build up to The Phantom Menace and being in year seven at senior school. And my oldest sister, because none of my family were interested, taking me. And I remember my mate at the time, um, David York, we were at school and he'd gone to America. And he it was when films came out in America, like four months before they came out in the UK. And he'd seen it. And so for four months, he'd been telling me all this stuff about how amazing it was and how brilliant it was. And so I just got this mad. And, you know, the, the build up to that movie was so intense. And I remember going with my sister and just loving it. I, You know, like I would have been about 12. But I remember Phantom Menace. Like, I know it got a lot of negative press. And I, I, it, look, it had a bad ride from, you know, old, like Simon Pegg openly and started, you know, space. There's whole streams of space about his hatred for the, the trilogy that George did. That's, but, that's always but, what I think of. I always think of based when I hear him burning his toys yeah. Yeah. <laughs> goes to the job center and saying I got sacked and she goes Phantom Menace yeah like, that's great yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean I loved it I was a kid and I, I loved it and you know I think that there's that great thing in Spaced where he said you know someone says to him you know he says yeah but you know Jar Jar and someone says yeah but the Ewoks and he's like you know and it's like I think it depends how old you are who you are but I, I, I really love Phantom Menace but I just remember being so excited I remember coming home and I remember they did the little Kellogg's cornflakes um things and we used to make stop frame animations out of those and i just remember that being super pumped about that movie maybe i was in year nine maybe i was a bit older but i just remember being super pumped yeah and then seeing it like two or three times at the cinema i remember going to see that with my dad mum and my dad knows nothing about star wars and he comes out at the end at phantom menace and he goes so the little kid that was luke skywalker right and i was like no dad bless you I'm with you. I absolutely love Ghost 2. I think, yes! I think I think Ghostbusters... I almost prefer Ghostbusters 2 to Ghostbusters, the original. This like, is a safe place, Sean. We are all- yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to argue. I completely understand that. It was my, I preferred number two for, for most of... Probably most of my life, but I think I've come round to preferring one. But I, I love to. I don't, I don't know what anyone's problem with it is. It's brilliant. I think it's great. I think the only silly thing... Although, I mean, there's a few silly things... But you would expect, perhaps, if the Ghostbusters are in court, you might expect someone to just, you know, if they're saying there's a river of slime, you might get someone to just pop their head down and go, no, they're right, there is a river of slime. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. What is your best sequel ever? I was thinking about this when you said it, and it's probably good that I haven't had a lot of time to think about it. And I think it's going to haunt me, because as soon as you commit to one, I'm going to spend the rest of my life going... Ah, it's not that actually it's this and I, so it's, a, it's 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 an interesting question because i've never thought about it it never occurred to me to think about my favorites but the one i picked was desperado because i think it's pretty much one of if not the best film of the 1990s i think i think it's incredible and doesn't get nearly enough credit for how good it is and it's a sequel but it's it's the genre i like which is sequel slash remake and i like that i like any film that does that any film that sort of works as both things scream 2 is my favorite of the scream franchise i can't (laughs) it's gonna sound really weird me talking about this film but i was kind of obsessed with it when it came out so again my obsession you know in those days was like related to kind of magazines so like empire (laughs) 
had this um, photo, screen two photo shoot. I can remember it and picture it as clear, like as you know, it could be in front of me right now. And it's kind of like this blue. It's like got this blue filter on it, and obviously it's very late nineties, early two thousands in terms of its fashion and everything. And it and that photo was like my happy place for a long time. I used to just gaze oh. at it. <laughs> But um, I love Screen 2, and the reason I love it is probably, again, you people will laugh at the reason I love it so much. One of the main reasons I love it is that it came out when I was on the cusp between secondary school and university, and it's a col- it's like my favourite college film of all time, <laughs> and it's like American colleges were like, because I was a big, I've been a big like America file all my life, and I now live in the US. So I've always been obsessed with America and like American colleges. They always looked so cool to me. Like the fact that they have that quad and they're always really leafy and they've got nice buildings and stuff. So it's the fact that it was this amazing college movie. And to me, I was like, oh, when I... And also, I was a drama student. So I studied theatre at university, right? Yeah. And Sydney <laughs> is a theatre student in Scream 2. And she does... <laughs> there's this whole plot where she's like in this Greek tragedy and like <laughs> it's this amazing full-blown production. This is like what I thought, me going to university, oh yeah, this is totally what it's going to be like and I'm going to be in a Greek tragedy with red, you know, satin <laughs> blowing all over the place in a wind machine and it's going to be real like high production values. What are your favourite scenes from The Dark Knight? Which ones stand out for you? Got any favourites? Uh, well, Apart from the beginning, but of course, there are, you know, there are several key points. But I think, again, in terms of being there, being at the IMAX, you've, you've heard the Joker's voice. You've now sort of, you've got this little peek at how Heath is going to play him through the, the, the ripping off the mask and delivering that line at the beginning. But we've still not got a sense of, a bigger sense of how he's going to play him. How is he going to live within him? <laughs> it does. It's just incredible. You have the, the the crime lords sat there. It's crazy. The, yeah. And then it, it comes to, I think, that was it sort of tracking shot behind him. He walks through the thing, the sort of, you know, the detector, the, the thing. And we're waiting for the famous laugh. You know, the big joker cackle. That's yeah. what we're... And that's what everyone is expecting. And he just goes, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> and it got such a big laugh in the cinema, no one was expecting it. What a way to play with what you're expecting. Also, it made him more menacing. That scene is a phenomenal scene. You've sort of introduced him twice. What a a clever way of doing it. You know, we'll rip off the mask, we'll never deliver a line, then hold it back, really hold it, and and then let him enter a scene like that, and he just... I really love that there's absolutely no origin story whatsoever for the Joker just allows the Joker to be a thing. You know, it doesn't explain him, doesn't kind of try to fill in the blanks for you. You know, it completely leaves that to you. And that just, that for me, just makes it perfect. Well, you know? but you know, like when he, um, he, I think the first time that he ends up delivering his backstory is to yeah. one of, I can't remember the name of, sorry, you might remember the name, the guy where he cuts, I think, you know, he, he kills him. Uh, and, he kill, and he kills him. And and it's before he kills him that he says, like, do you want to know how he, I got these scars? So, you know, we well, I think we've all forgotten that because we talk about, oh, how brilliant it is that he keeps on, you know, coming up with these different backstories. But the first time you're watching that, you think, oh, 
Well, there's the backstory. Yeah. Mm. So then he, when he delivers a different one, it's just <laughs> mind-blowing. Yeah. Again, you can't believe how brilliant it is. And of course, yeah, of course, of course he doesn't tell the backstory. Of course he doesn't. <laughs> yes. That's so perfect. Um, so, that you know, there's that. I think there's every time he tells a backstory, that opening scene. But again, you know, it's it's got to be the, the, the one-on-one meeting with Batman in prison. You're not like them. Mm. When the light turns, he turns the light on, he's just standing behind him. Oh, absolutely wonderful. Hits his head on the board. Yeah, it's great. If you, by the way, if you, you know, if you watch that again, next time you watch that, remember this. I I, I actually didn't, I've not looked up this, if you will, goof, but I did (laughs) spot it myself, which is before Batman slams his head on the desk, you can see Heath just before he does it, flinch because he knows it's coming. <laughs> you can see the actor go, "Oh God, here we go!" and does it. Yeah, you're, you know, we're the. What's the dialogue? But you, you know. One, sorry, I was just wondering how many takes of that it took for him to flinch like that. It's like this is the fifteenth time now. Yeah. Just... yeah, 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 yeah. And of course, that's also the scene that you know. That's so. Not only do you have this fantastic one-on-one, the great, you know, without a doubt, I don't think anyone could really contest it, the, the, the greatest superhero villain of all time yeah. against one of, absolutely one of, the best superheroes of all time. We've been waiting for this. We've not had it since 1989. And they're back and we're getting to watch it. They're talking. It's just, it's brilliant. It's what cinema's about. It's it, it, it's event cinema. I can't yeah, believe yeah, it. Yeah. The Joker and Batman, one on one, just talking. And but it's also the scene that then sets that amazing chase where where Batman then has to go and and uh, he's obviously he's trying to save. I'm sure we could do spoilers on this. Oh yeah, go for he, it. You know, he, yeah, he thinks I mean, he's going to save Rachel. And, right. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> but, yeah, he thinks he's going to save Rachel, and he ends Rachel. up saving half. I was just the way that film unfolds, and I'm not actually a huge fan of action. I think you tend to grow out of it as you get older. I think what Nolan paid a lot of attention to, it's very apparent in in, in a Dark Knight in particular, is. Every piece of action is really part of the story. So you were so invested, you know, that when Batman's off to, to try and save Rachel, you are so invested in this, this chase sequence, this ac- action sequence, because of where it's going. And he doesn't, he never stops that. That's all the action is always, there's always jeopardy uh, at the bottom of it. So here's the thing. We did an episode years and years ago on the show about favorite sequels. I remember having a conversation with my co-host saying, go on the show. I don't want to do the same answer again. That's kind of boring. And it's like, but it's your answer. It's the answer. I haven't changed this answer since I was a child. And you're like, yeah, good point. It is the right answer. So the answer for me is Star Trek II Wrath of Khan. Lovely answer. Yeah, for some people. Some people go, Ugh. Who? Who's done that? Who? Yeah, who Troglodytes. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, essentially Star Trek II is fascinating to me for multiple reasons. For those who don't, no, 1982, directed by Nicholas Meyer. Harve Bennett's come on as the producer. Star Trek The Motion Picture was a reactionary thing because 
Star Trek, the original series, was fine. It ran, it became this sort of, you know, culture of print to a degree. And then Star Wars came out and said, well, Pyramid, what, what property do we have with that the word star in it? And, you know, bang, we have a Star Trek. Oh, that's great. We can bring this back. And the motion picture is made, I think, $45 million, which is a huge, huge sum at times, still pretty big money. Mm. It was very long, very boring. And on a certain level, quite interesting on a philosophical point of view. It's like, yeah, sure. Probe goes out to space, thinks, comes back to see God and God's us. And we're like, oh, how disappointing. And Spock essentially just fly through a cloud for a while it's fine as a piece it makes sense but it killed died at the box office and it was like this is not doing well critics don't like it either and so there's a famous quote i think from one of the producers where half bennett's brought in and he says yeah i can make a film with that he says right can you make it for less than 45 fucking million dollars and he says where i come from we can make five movies with that and then he goes off and he's like i've never seen an episode of star trek in my life so he has to go and do a little research <laughs> and he brings on nicholas meyer who's also never seen star trek in his life they go through the the original show come across um spacey which is the the khan episode basically and they say bang mm. there's an open-ended thing there and there's a a villain because the first film doesn't really have a villain it has an inquisitive probe and that's fine but the audience wants a Darth Vader it wants a, a, the evil machinations of some cackling bad guy the reason I think it's it's the best sequel to this day remains the best sequel is it's one of the few examples the sequel being better than the original and what we've just mentioned this film doesn't actually escalate it doesn't go bigger because it can't for the money it goes deeper in the emotion so what you end up with is something that is less of a visual spectacle motion picture for what it's worth when it's done the director's cut and it's all and it's all very pretty at times and like oh wow you've done a lot here this thing started saying well what can we do with its lo-fi they're like well we'll take all the costumes from the old film and dye them red and they'll be the sort of rest of the cruise uniform we had no bunny we'll, we'll get the backdrop for kirk's apartment to be literally the backdrop from the towering inferno that'll do it was in san francisco that kind of stuff they're literally just stealing what they can from the, the studio just say we can repurpose this that'll do that'll do that'll do and then then they do this beautiful genius idea that carries on for a lot of star trek and makes it stand out which is that this is a naval thing and these are submarines these are very slow turning three-dimensional objects not dogfights in space and they have that beautiful various solutions in water filmed in slow-mo for the, for the sort of backdrops of this nebula and it still holds up really well as well as the mm. Genesis probe you know visualization sequence being cutting-edge technology because they can afford that small 20-30 seconds of, of CGI <laughs> and the emotional art between Kurt, Spock and McCoy is very strong as well as an adversary that again because uh, Ricardo Montalban was on Fantasy Island at the time he couldn't get the scheduling to be on screen at the same time as Shatner so those two despite being adversaries and it's like everybody knows screaming and echoing up like, they never share the screen yeah. and that is so amazingly fascinating to how you can do that sort of this, this to say this mm. the idea of what old naval battles would be in a master and commander kind of mindset you know that you'd never actually meet eye to eye because those captains are too too mad but they, they have so much passion and hatred for each other etc psycho 2 absolutely incredible film and no one talks about it i was really i i I never even thought there was a Psycho no. 2 until until your pick. Yeah, and I watched it and I would say I was pleasantly surprised. But this is the thing. Like, barely anybody knows about Psycho 2, let alone Psycho 3, Psycho 4, and Bates Motel, not the TV series with Freddie Highmore, but the straight-to-TV film, which is admittedly an abomination. Psycho 2, on the other hand, is like, if there was ever a horror film ever made that didn't need a sequel, Psycho. Yeah. Because it's got it's got one of the best, most iconic endings of all time. Like, the, the shot of Norman in the cell with the skeleton sort of, like, slowly coming across 
across the face and then just those credits with the car being dredged mm. and it's like wow I've just watched one of the best things of all time you know for years since everyone just said it's one of the best films of all time we don't need to know anything else here we know everything about Norman Bates we've got the reveal about his mother we have that bait and switch with uh, Marion Crane like nothing else needs to be said so why on earth 23 years later would anyone go Psycho 2 mate that's what I want and so <laughs> I watched I watched it because I found out it existed. When did you watch it? Sorry, when did you watch it? I was uh studying an Alfred Hitchcock module at university. Of course. I was I was writing a 4000 word essay about Alfred Hitchcock. Why wouldn't you? And I'd watched I'd watched Psycho like 5 6 times over the course of like 3 weeks to the point where I was there like okay I, I'm thinking about my mum more than I should be right now. <laughs> and and I uh <laughs> I was I was there like I because I've got letterboxed and when I when you're on the page on the letterboxed app I'm not getting paid to promote letterboxed by the way when you're on when you're on the page for letterboxed at the bottom of it it's got related films and it was like the Psycho two three four blah 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 and I was there like okay Psycho two what is the worst sequel you've ever watched? So I don't know if this is the worst. Obviously, at Sequelizers, we deal with a lot of bad sequels. But I think the one that sticks in my mind the most is Men in Black 2. Great answer. Because the first film was so good. And we, we kind of... I've, I've mentioned on, on Sequelizers a few times about how I feel like Men in Black 2 was like my critical mind coming online. Because before that, I just kind of watched movies and they just kind of washed over me. And I was just like, I liked it when the explosions happened and the people <sighs> said the funny things. And I watched Men in Black 2 and I was like, huh, I'm not feeling entertained. In fact, I... I'm kind of sitting here and just feeling like angry because I feel like I've been conned out of money. <laughs> um, and I'm, you know, and I can't stop thinking about like, oh, that was bad. I would have done that differently or, you know, that, oh, why have they made this choice? And so it was, it was like my critical brain kind of waking up for the first time. And I kind of walked out of that film and was just like, man, that was bad. I did not like that. And it, it, it in so in some ways it was great because it, it forced me to start questioning my relationship with media and stuff wow. like that but what a disappointment after such a brilliant first film and it, you kind of think like where did you go wrong you had the same stars who had the fantastic chemistry between um, Tommy Lee Jones and, and Will Smith you have the same director like you've got you know great budget and all that kind of stuff and it's just dreck it's just bad I know there's some people out there who do like it and I'm like I don't who, understand who you <laughs> they're wrong yeah I wouldn't say I like what? it oh, no. but I don't hate it Oh, Rich, it's shit. It is shit. <laughs> I was a massive Men in Black fan. I bought the single. It was it was in the front of the first film magazine I ever bought. I was so into it. I loved Will mm. Smith. I loved the aliens. I loved the, him and Tommy Lee Jones. I loved everything about Men in Black. And I was so excited for Men in Black too. And then you watch it. And like you said, the choices they make are just absolutely a puddle of piss and this even the cgi was bad back there with the johnny knoxville extra heads yeah and the storyline the terrible like we're talking about how good magneto and striker were as bad guys and then we get laura <laughs> boyle flynn whatever it is it's supposed to be a b movie though isn't it it's supposed to be like a 50s it's, it's supposed to be, to be a Richard. 50s b movie and that's why they're cheesy you know that's that's kind of the the angle they're going at do you not think it's entertaining at all? Do you not get any anything from it? I I mean I haven't no. watched it in a long long time I did. but I can think of like one scene that I enjoy which is where Will Smith is going to the yeah, post office that's the to bit like, I like. <laughs> re 
reawaken Tommy Lee Jones's character and you have the bit starring the tragically just died mm. Biz Marquis doing like beatboxing to kind of like identify himself as an alien and the reason that scene is actually quite good apart from like having great people in it is because it's a joke that wasn't in the first one and feels new whereas so much of that film is hey you liked the pug from the first film let's bring him back and give him like more lines yep. but less to worms. do basically Ugh. hey you like the worm guys let's bring them back hey you like this hey you like that you liked uh, when Tony Shalhoub got his head shot off let's do that again it's it's repeating every joke with diminishing returns even the final joke where, where you have that zoom out from the the earth to show that you know we've been dealing with a galaxy that's in a marble and hey our galaxy's in a marble too and you know it's, it keeps going out and they do exactly the same joke at the end of the second film alien versus predator 2 requiem oh, fuck that movie fuck you, <laughs> it's the worst it's the worst. why is the worst to you and then we'll jump on it's the worst to me because i grew up loving loving aliens again that's just another area of my slightly inappropriate film going youth i, I bought I watched Aliens at a very young Alien at a very young age and Aliens and was again became very, very obsessed with that world. I thought it was so cool and scary, but not too scary. And then obviously by proxy, you then discover Predator. And I, I liked Predator too when I was a bit younger and now I am okay with it. When Alien vs Predator was coming out, so that came out in two thousand and four? I believe I could. Yeah, we were we were at uni. Yeah. when it came out. Yeah, I, I, well, obviously, give or take a year. I, I know, I know, I was I was young. I, I was about eight when when Alien vs Predator was coming out, and I was so excited for it as any eight year old boy that watched Alien and Predator as a slightly younger child would be. It was like the ultimate event. It was my it was my end game at that time in my life. <laughs> I remember Sorry. seeing trailers for it and just thinking, oh my god, like this is going to be like the best movie of my entire life. I, I've been waiting my life for this at, at the age of eight. I like, and you know what, I still don't mind Alien vs Predator. I'm not going to even tend or vaguely defend it as being as good as its predecessors. I think it's a PG-13 Alien and Predator movie that kind of knows what it is. I think clearly wants to have fun with Alien and Predator in a way that isn't scary, the way it's like an action movie. And when they do fight, it's it's fine. It's fine. And it's, you know what, it's watchable. That, that's the main thing here. It is watchable. And then Alien vs Predator 2, I had no idea it was even a thing until I saw the DVD in, in <laughs> Tesco. I obviously, like, however many years later, when I was with my mum and dad on the Sunday shop, I was like, oh my God, what? what? Uh, and then my mum and dad just... I didn't really even need to ask because they knew I would desperately want it and they're like, okay then, you can get it. Straight in the shopping basket, straight home. It was the addition too too nasty for cinemas or something like that. I was like, I was like great, great, so excited, put it in. Oh my Christ, it is, <laughs> it is diabolical. It is the worst thing. It's an insult to everything. It's, it's terrible writing. Again, it's it, it's just completely uninformed about itself. Like I say, Alien vs Predator, the first one, I still feel likes where its roots are, if it's clearly just not bothered about honouring them too much. Whereas the second movie is Alien and Predator fighting in a slasher, a shitty slasher movie, basically. Most of all, you cannot see Alien or Predator throughout the movie. That is fucking dreadful. <laughs> But I've chosen The Rise of Skywalker because I've seen it now three times. I saw it twice in the cinema because the first time I thought it can't be 
that can't be it. <laughs> it can't be that bad. So I saw it again, and admittedly, the second time it did go up slightly. Like it went up from like a 2 out of 5 to maybe like a 2.5 out of 5. Because there are some nice bits in it. Like the end game bit, the end is quite nice. And it's just, you know, it's quite well shot and stuff at points. But I think the further away I am from the film coming out, and the more I learn about how it was made and how badly it was just kind of put together from the very first of the sequel trilogy it manages to somehow retroactively make the other two films worse it does not add up to a cohesive trilogy at all and i think the third one is a kind of an amalgamation of all the issues that the trilogy had even even despite being a very big fan of both force awakens and last jedi the rise of skywalker is just so badly put together that it feels like about four films in one there are some pretty diabolical acting performances in there i think no offense i, I love daisy Ridley as a person but i think she gives quite a bad performance as ray i think the film in general just doesn't come together they added in palpatine for no reason other than we need something to kind of bring it all together again. You know, it's not as if there was a mention of Palpatine in the first film. They just added him in very last second in The Rise of Skywalker. And I just thought, nah, this it's, it has ruined kind of my love for the sequel trilogy because my link to Star Wars is not that strong yeah. compared to other people. Like, I only watched kind of the originals when I was in university, so like 10 plus years ago. So I'd seen the, the prequels before I'd seen the originals. And I enjoyed the, these originals, don't get me wrong. I think they're all very good. I think Empire, Sky, Empire Strikes Back is definitely the best one. But I'm not as massive a Star Wars nut as many people are. Like I know like you are, Dave, you. for example. So the seeing the sequels, these were new Star Wars films that I had quite a big connection to. I thought these are new characters. That, you know, you've got Han, you've got Leia, you've got Luke again. So you've got those to kind of tie to the originals. But you do have, you've got Rey, you've got Finn... You've got Kylo Ren, who I think is one of the better Star Wars villains. And yet, even with Kylo, the Rise of Skywalker just ruins his entire character arc. By in the last 20 minutes, he says not a single word. His, his entire journey to becoming Ben Solo again is completely ruined when he doesn't get a chance to say anything to Rey when he sacrifices his life for her. Like, what are we doing here, man? Like, it's just... It was so frustrating to watch it unfold because... You know, the end, the, the moment when you find out that Ray is a Palpatine, Ugh, for example, yeah. that's the end of a film. That's not the end of Act 2. Like, that is where a film should have ended and then you had a while to kind of come to terms with the fallout of her being a Palpatine. And then the next film deals with the consequence of that, her trying to become good again or something like that. But that's not the end of a middle act. That is not no. the way that should have been done. And it just smacks of a film that was written a month before it was meant to be being shot. And it was... Sorry, I've ranted for a long time about Star Wars. I'm going to be completely <laughs> controversial and say that I, I dislike The Last Jedi more than Rise of Skywalker. What? But, but, what? but, <laughs> having said that, it's only the first hour or so of Rise of Skywalker that I like. <laughs> and also, when I watched it, I watched it in the cinema for the first time, and today was the only the second time that I've watched it, I was so angry. <laughs> I don't think I've ever been so angry in a movie at the cinema ever. Yeah. And my, my wife was genuinely worried because I was so cross. I was mm -hmm. just like fuming. Mainly the last line. Just the last line of the film. Well, Ray just Skywalker, just yeah. craps over the whole entire franchise. 
basically, you've chosen the name, you've chosen Skywalker just to make the title of this film work. Yeah. That is the only reason. She could have said Palpatine and recognised the sacrifice that her parents made for her. She could have said, and which would have been a perfectly acceptable ending, just Ray. Just Ray. Yeah. Just That's Ray. all she yeah. needed to say. Yeah. Saying Skywalker just makes this just makes the title of the film work. And that's it. Yeah. That's all that does. Hideous. Absolutely along, hideous. Along the same lines, it is completely appalling. <laughs> it's along the same lines, like say what you will about Last Jedi, because I'm a big fan of it. I don't think it's, you know, perfect but any by any stretch of imagination, but I think it is very good. And I think what it wants to do in that it kind of throws out the rule book of Star Wars being like anyone can be a Jedi, you haven't got to be linked yeah, to exactly, any lineage yeah. or ever. That whole idea is wonderful. She's, you know, convincing, you know, the kid with the broom at the end of Last Jedi, like, he has seen that, oh, he could be a new Jedi because he's seen someone else who's not from the Skywalker lineage. He, you know, he knows that he could become the next Jedi. And yet they throw that out the window in the third film, like, in negates the whole point of The Last Jedi. The film that Ryan Johnson wrote was a film that was released into cinemas. And yet, so this idea that Disney kind of didn't like Last Jedi is nonsense. They didn't like the fan reactions of Last Jedi. So that's why they completely re-kind of wrote The Rise of Skywalker to suit Reddit forums and kind of the really rabid mm. fan base. You know, and that's what killed Star Wars off as a sequel trilogy. That's what ruined the entire trilogy. And so just the fact that, like, to go back to it, the fact that Last Jedi set up this wonderful concept of that you haven't got to be anyone. And yet, Rise of Skywalker just thought, actually, you've got to be someone important, actually. Oh, it ruins the entire point of the whole trilogy. What is your dream sequel? What's the film you, you love so much that hasn't got a sequel and and Rich is magician, so he can make this happen? <laughs> okay, well, it sort, of is, it sort of is happening, but not happening, which is why I want to talk about it because I'm a bit disappointed. But I'm not disappointed. I don't know. Anyway, a sequel in the Tim Burton... Batman yeah. universe that is Michael Keaton Batman but The Dark Knight Returns basically so don't do the comic book The Dark Knight Returns because like the original Batman's kind of like killing joke yeah. few of the bits and bobs but then they did their own spin on it obviously and so it's its own universe isn't it it's like Tim Burton's yeah. Batman yeah. so that it, with that Gotham with that and, and he has to come back for whatever reason. So you're talking, again. yeah, sequel to Batman Returns, and you would have it have it done now yep. as Old Man Batman, or would you a few years after Batman Returns? I'd have it done now as Old Amazing. Man Old Man Batman. Nice. So just do I it like now. Because obviously he's coming back in the Flash movie, and it's like, it's cool, he's going to be Batman again. But I think Michael Keaton, for me, is like a definitive Batman, mm. or at least a yeah. comic book. Batman, like just the visuals, the vibe, the acting. Yeah. The, he's the one that's the most psychotic. Yeah, by far. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it just could be so good. Keaton is Batman for me. Like there, there's no yeah. other Batman. It just could be such a good film. What are if you? They did it right. He looks so that's good it. as Batman. He, he is. He's just, <laughs> he's just so good. Genuinely scary, you know. There was there was a third part planned, so Tim Burton had it all planned, and mm. it got trashed by Joel Schumacher essentially because again the studio interfered too much, and Tim Burton said, "No, I'm not doing it." And pulled Keaton out, walked. and then Keaton walked. Shortly. It is interesting yeah. to read about all Keaton that. walked, and they got Val Kilmer. Do you know they had Robin Williams lined up for the Riddler? That'd been insane. Yeah, that would have been. I heard that, that. would have been good. That would have been amazing. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's weird how it all went. Keep Burton directing. That's your. That's who you would have as your 
director now? Not necessarily, because he's kind of lost his mojo nowadays. <laughs> no, you can you know, say it. I don't like being neg- I don't like being negative about people. I just feel like it, he he's in search of a of a, a hit. Yeah, definitely. So this could be it, to be honest. Mm. You know, get his mojo back because it's very Tim Burton the Batman movie, especially Batman Returns as well. Yeah, and there's just something about it. The tone again. I could keep keep coming back to tone, but I could just you can just see it him like having to be Batman again. Alfred's long dead because he was already really he old. Was very old. You have to have like Robin, you know. But you do that sort of like Robin was probably killed. Okay, um, I'm about to say who would you cast? And, and then he's like, I'm gonna get a new Robin. Okay, and he doesn't want to do it, but then he has to do it because he's old. Yeah. And then you know it's just it kind of almost writes itself because you've got that time period in between. Who would you cast as? The new Robin, then? I think it would be best if it was as a, a girl, oh, okay. like in the comic. Yep. I have no. <laughs> Somebody. <laughs> Just one step. Would you have Danny, Danny Elfman back as composer to the music? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Because that's like a huge part of Batman, where it's gothic and just brilliant and then you can do another sequel after you can do Batman Beyond oh. yes please where he can't be Batman now because he's literally is too old and he has to train a new Batman and it's going a bit more sci-fi and stuff because Batman Beyond is a really cool cartoon and a really good idea I really had to think long and hard about this one and I was oh I was toing and throwing but I decided that the chosen one would be the Labyrinth love it Love it. it. Again, I absolutely love it because Dave is so scared and freaked out by this movie as well. (laughs) I can't tell you how many nightmares this has given me when I was a young boy. Really? Honestly. Still, the things that throw their heads up and down terrify me. The hands going down. And the thought that there's goblins. Yeah, the thought that there's goblins in my cupboard waiting under the bed and stuff. I can't get over it. I never (laughs) forgive it. I'm terrified of it. It's... I, I've seen horror films. I've seen thrillers that are meant to scare you. And the films I'm most scared of is this one. My brother bought it for me a couple of years ago for a laugh. I've got rid of it straight away. Just Amazing. the puppets freak me out as well. Anyway, you know, why do you love it? No, but the thing is, I just, I totally understand it. it there are certain bits like the fiery traps that you're talking about. You keep throwing their heads around. That is quite scary, particularly when she goes to escape. And it's almost like they're going to stop her. And I think a lot of these adventure films, it's hard to sort of get away from the fact that, you know, if you go back in time to things like, you know, Carol's writings and just some of the other people, like Alice in Wonderland, there is a lot of sort of quite pedophilic sort of connotations. You know, even if you look at like certain ballets, you know, like the Nutcracker, I found it quite like that. But, and in this one, you know, not only that bit with the fire guys, but also when she's in that, absolutely incredibly iconic and incredible set um of the ball the ballroom you mm. know having that goblin ball and obviously she is like 13 years old 14 years old or something but she's certainly very young mm. um oh, that she's 14 actually that's who she's she's supposed to be 14 and you know obviously you've got a goblin king that's asking her to love him and worship him and you know essentially be his queen so, you know, those sort of moments, I think, as I got older, I thought, wow, it's quite, that kind of is, doesn't sit well with me. <laughs> um, but as a child, you know, you don't see it like that. You know, you just think it all looks very innocent and, you know, you kind of, the bit that scares you is the costumes and the, oh no, are they going to hurt her? And, oh, Ludo's huge. Oh, he's nice. That's fine. He can protect her sort of thing, you know? Yeah. I just, there was so much magic involved, like, the journey of her going there and 
for me, you know, I I, <laughs> I used to get lipsticks <laughs> and I draw arrows on the pavement. <laughs> sorry, everyone. <laughs> it was me. <laughs> I am Banksy. <laughs> but yeah so I really I really did like I was really I loved it and actually the hands I maybe I'm just a weirdo but I loved it so much I just saw it as little little bits of art in a way and I'd be like that's my first favorite that's my second favorite that's my third honestly I did ask my mom it is it's like art I think it's like art I think it's like an art installation of a movie and you know the fact that David Bowie's in it is even better yeah it's unique I'd say that about it And, and so many people love it it's incredible how many people enjoy it and how I seem to be the only one that doesn't really like it yeah. at all. Did you see it as a small girl when you were young? Because when was yeah, this made? I can remember the first moment I saw it, actually. Um, Tell us about it. I was eight years old and I, when I was younger, I had terrible asthma and I was, I was admitted to hospital for a few days. And when I came out, my brother and sister were really excited to have me watch The Labyrinth as like a sort of welcome home. And they're like, oh, this is my sister, who's the eldest, said, oh, this is a film you're going to love. And I was like, oh, well, okay, just really happy to be home with the family. Yeah. And I just remember sitting there and just being really cosy and it being like nice and dim in the room and watching the labyrinth. And it was just mind-blowing. It was like happy to be home, awesome film, and then starring a guy who became one of my idols throughout my mm. life. And wrote the soundtrack, which, oh my gosh, I know every word to every song. <laughs> What's your favourite song? Oh, it has to be, you remind me of the babe, what babe, babe, the power, 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 voodoo, voodoo, remind me of the babe. <laughs> Brilliant. If you read the book of The Princess Bride, if you read certainly the uh, quote unquote 25th anniversary edition or later, you will find a chapter at the end, which is chapter one of Buttercup's Baby, a book that has not actually in fact been written. Um, and the chapter is called The Death of Fezzik, which is very upsetting in, in, immediately. And it's a great, great story. And you're just like, I need, I need more, more. I must have it. And so, so yeah, I would, I would love, love, love to see that. But I would be extremely picky about it. And I don't know, like, I don't know if there's anything more out there. If William Goldman ever wrote more and left it in a desk drawer or something, if one of his family will one day find it and publish it. I would 100% be here to read it. But, you know, I would I would absolutely love to see more Princess Bride because it is one of my all-time favourite films. And I think if you got the original cast maybe doing voice work and then animated it, I think Ooh, it could be pretty special. Because I don't want to recast any of them. I mean, you know, I can hear the arguments for recasting. Like someone the other day suggested that Tom Hiddleston would make a fine uh, man in black. And that's true. However, he is not ultimately... The Man in Black, you know. So while he would be very good in the role, the role is in fact Carrie Elwes's and always should be. So I would, I would quite like to see an animated version of of that, and uh, I think it could be cool. What happens in that chapter? Well, so basically, I mean, obviously the whole kingdom is after them as they escape. So they have to, you know, sort of ride through the night. They end up getting themselves onto an island that is surrounded by whirlpools, basically, so no one can come and get them, um, which gives them all a bit of time to kind of relax and recuperate. And Buttercup has a baby, and Fezzik becomes the baby's nursemaid, and they live there for several years. And the baby, you know, Fezzik is devoted to the kid, and the kid is likewise devoted to Fezzik because of course of course they are and then there comes a time when the 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 baddies are coming to get them basically and they have to escape up a mountain 
uh, or rather Fezzik is escaping up the mountain while the others, I think, try to get Inigo and the, you know, the Dread Pirate Roberts and the ship Revenge to come back mm. and, and rescue them. And, and Fezzik ends up separated from the group and is chased basically to the top of the mountain. And the only way to get Buttercup the, or the baby to safety is basically to jump off and cushion the baby's fall with his own body. And it's just like, I can't even, it's very upsetting. But um, but yeah, that's that's sort of the opening chapter wow. of the book. So you've got all these baddies after our little gang and them desperately trying to escape with the kid in tow when they've mentioned this to me as your as your your sequel yeah. the first thing that came into my head is we need a middle-aged fred savage reading this to peter folk in his nursing <laughs> home oh my god <laughs> that, this is this is how it needs to go oh god wouldn't it be wonderful <laughs> Wouldn't it want to be wonderful? But yeah, absolutely. Fred Savage reading it to to his kid would be amazing. But here's here's the thing. This is genuinely, even though I consider myself quite like knowledgeable about films, quite like hip with the critical and cultural consensus. Like I genuinely didn't know until picking this film for this and looking at IMDb and stuff. Like I didn't know that <laughs> I knew that critics didn't really like Scooby Doo and Scooby Doo Two. Like, I kind of knew that. What I didn't know was that fans also hate Scooby-Doo and Scooby-Doo 2. Like, there must be a specific subsection of kids that grew up in the 2000s that absolutely adore these films, and then, like, 95% of the rest of society hates them. Because there was going to be a Scooby-Doo 3, and it got cancelled because fans and critics hated it, and there was obviously no point in doing it. Oh, I feel bad I, now. I've only ever known loving those films. I thought everyone did, and it was... It was a real, like, red pill moment where I was there like, hang on, no one likes this. But I fucking love it. I really genuinely... Okay, next question. Why do you love, love it? it? Why do you love it? Okay, so I, I love the I love the Scooby-Doo cartoons, like the original Scooby-Doo cartoons. Like, so do I. Scooby-Doo-Doo-Doo. Yeah, yeah. Love it. Watch those on TV as a kid all the time. I loved the the animated TV films, like the Witches, Witches Ghost or... Witches Ghost, Cyber Chase, Aloha, Scooby-Doo. There were loads of them, basically. The live-action Scooby-Doo films, I I think they're so funny. I think they're so funny. I think that it's got one of the, like, best matches of casting to character in, like, any film going. Like, you you look at the cast for that film, and you've got Freddie Prinze Jr., who is so good. And if you, if you watch, like, Star Wars Rebels as well, like, as Kanan in Star Wars Rebels, he's one of my favourite Star Wars characters. I think he's so cool. And Sarah Michelle Gellar, who obviously Buffy the Vampire Slayer, she's great. And the one that I thought of was the Italian job. And that's just one that I really Can we just make sure much. we're talking about the Michael Caine one and not the Mark Wahlberg we one? We are. I've never seen the Mark Wahlberg one. Although Good. I did read something recently that made me think, oh, maybe. What, what did you read? I read that it's it was meant to have been a kind of more of a sequel to the first one originally and and i think also where eagles dare because they have the same writer and there was a there was a that someone initially wrote a screenplay of it which made it both a sequel to the italian job and a sequel to where eagles dare that makes it sound a hundred times more interesting than yeah and i was like is. no <laughs> but then it then it points out that's not what they made you know okay i'm out again i'm out again Suddenly I was like, oh, really? Yeah, I would have watched that. <laughs> it's a sequel to two films. Wow. Well, I think it's all meant to be... I think the idea was it was meant to be... It's the same writer. I think it's Troy Kennedy Martin wrote both of them. And I think the idea, which might be a thing that's that's worth looking into, was I think someone was trying to make a kind of almost shared universe thing where it's all about the gold is the same gold just oh. 20 years later. And it's this sort of gold that's being 
shipped around different wow. different that's, that's mafia cool. and uh, and Nazis and whatever, and who has control of this bullion. And so I was like, oh, that sounds great. And then yeah, I went, and suddenly great. I was all, yeah, that sounds great. For about for half a minute, I was all in on. Oh man, I can't believe I haven't seen it. Oh, that's not what they did. All right, forget it. No, I'm out again. I'm out. <laughs> Have you seen Hobbs and Shaw? No, no. There's I a bit. It's a bit because obviously Statham's in the, the remake of the Italian Job, and there's a bit when they're in a garage and he points to one of the old minis or whatever. And he's like, "Oh, I did a job in Italy once," and everyone was like, "Oh, was he? In, is he the same guy? The same guy?" <laughs> so now everyone's got this theory that Hobbs and Shaw is the same character that's in the Italian Job. If he's the same character in the Italian Job, but that's the same goal that's from the Italian Job and from when Eagles Dare, we've got a universe building. That means it's connected to the Fast and Furious franchise. Do you have a storyline in your head that you could vision if you're Willow sequel? Would you have the Val Kilmer return? Do you have a separate story? <clears throat> Obviously, you have to bring Willow back, I guess, because it's called Willow. Uh, I mean, it wouldn't have to be called Willow, but yes, Ooh. I mean, I think we and, and, and Warwick Davis is going to be in, I, I believe he's going to be in the, the follow-up. Yes, I, I, yeah, I, I definitely would bring that community and that world back into it because I think that's what I loved about it as well was it was, you know, the everyman fighting, you know, extreme odds to overcome tyranny and, and those kind of, that's why I loved, you know, Red Lord of the Rings when I was a kid and that idea that those sort of simple, wholeful people can, you know, change the course and destinies against even the people who should be doing it, the warriors and all sorts. That that sort of idea of those people triumphing against all odds is in, is kind of part of our part of fiction, isn't it? The kind of the everyman fighting the and I think Willow's story of kind of you know someone who's slightly pathetic and not the sorcerer that he wants to be kind of realizing his and reaching his destinies uh, and i'd just love to know where that character is i'd love to know where willow upgood i think it's upgood willow upgood is it upgood upward upgood i'd love to know where he is and what he's doing and i always remember watching that movie i, I loved his relationship with his wife like you really bought into the this is a father who loves his family and he's and when he's on that quest you really you really worry for i really worry for him you know i remember the sequence where he comes out where it's where he's been beaten up and he's got blood on his face and i think it's where they took a laura dannon and he's sort of like stumbling and you know mad mardigan sees him i you know i just remember it's a film that gives me all the feels and i think I could do you could do it without Mad Mardigan if Val Kilmer wasn't interested. I think you could do it without Mad Mardigan. Then you could create other characters. I think that Willow is such an integral part of that movie and the heart of that movie. You know, Mad Mardigan is such an incredible character and he's kind of the Han Solo, but without Luke, you haven't got a yeah. movie, really. He's so good in this, Val Kilmer. He's so, so, good. so good. Oh, this is, you could, for me, this is Val classic Val Kilmer. Well, yeah. no, he Heat is Val Kilmer's <laughs> best film. He's phenomenal in Heat. He is, by okay. shadow of a doubt, he's just. This is Val Kilmer. It, do you know this? The thing about this film and and, and Val Kilmer's performance is it, it feels like Val Kilmer is enjoying acting and being a part of something. Yeah. Was, I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen Lost Souls, um, the making of uh, Doctor Monroe, the Island of Doctor Monroe. No, I've heard about it though. Oh, it's it's phenomenal. It's on Amazon Prime. You can watch it. Uh, he just comes across as a really angry, like he doesn't want to be, and he must have been going through stuff in his life. And obviously, you know, it, you know, his performance as Mad Mardigan is just, is exceptional. His performance in Heat is brilliant. And that was years later, I think. So but... Val Kilmer and Joanne Wiley, Whaley meet on this movie and get married. And that's the divorce that you were talking about earlier. Oh, wow. Through. Yeah. <laughs> so what, when he was doing Batman, it was that divorce. When he was doing Batman, they were getting divorced, yeah. So wow. that's that's kind of what I was saying. There's, so there's a link. This is all going to come full circle. Yeah, when we're talking about him being angry in that divorce. 
they, oh, they wow. met on this movie. And there's such great chemistry between them in this movie as well. Oh, oh yeah. Their relationship, relationship is relationship. phenomenal. Yeah. It's such tell. a good Sunday afternoon film, I thought. It's always on on a Sunday on film four. It seems oh, to yeah. always be on on a Sunday on film How four. have I missed it? And those were some of the best unequal sequels of series one. Yay, you did Yay. it. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> oh man, I can't believe it's the end of series one already, Dave. Totally emotional, isn't it? it it's, it's It's gone so quickly and I've enjoyed it so much. <laughs> but the good news is you don't have to wait very long till series two starts because we're coming back in November. Yay! Yay! It won't be long at all and we'll be back. And you, you won't even have known we've gone. No, because the extras will still be carrying on as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're still going to do, do nice little short half an hour extra bits, aren't we? Yes. Yeah, review, because there's loads of cool sequels coming out, so we're going to keep reviewing the sequels. Yes. <laughs> I like how Dave's rolling his eyes there. Like, there aren't any good sequels coming out. What are you talking no, about? No, there, there was until they all got delayed yesterday. Yeah, I know. Tell me about it. <laughs> there were some really good sequels coming. And now they've all been delayed. <laughs> we'll always have um, Ghostbusters. That seems to be. Hotel Transylvania 4 is coming in October. Straight, straight to Amazon. <laughs> Isn't it? Straight to Amazon. I think so, yeah. Oh, George was really looking forward to seeing it at the cinema, damn it. <laughs> we'll be back in November. If you haven't listened to all the shows, this is your. This is a good chance for you to go back and listen to all of Series 1. They yes. are definitely worth it. We need to say thank you to all of our guests, Dave. So we need to say thank you to Helen O'Hara. We need to say thank you to Sean Walsh. We need to say thank you to Matt Ferguson. Yeah. We need to say thank you to Cameron Frew. Yeah. We need to say thank you to Lewis Arnold. Yeah. We need to say thank you to Tim and Matt from the Sequelizers. Yeah. We need to say thank you to Fiona Underhill. Yeah. We need to say thank you to Jordan King. We need to say thank you to Nathaniel Metcalf. We need to say thank you to Jacqueline Paul. We need to say thank you to Reese Bowen Jones. <laughs> thank you everyone yeah. for being guests on our first series. You will go down in history. When we're on series 76 and we're the most listened to podcast in the history of the world, Joe Rogan has finally fucked off. Um, <laughs> people will look back on this first series and be like, hey, hey. Those, are the, those are the trailblazers. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I've had so much fun. I think Rich has had fun as well. I've had loads um, of fun. It's been awesome. Can't wait to get season two started, to be honest. So, oh, exciting. I mean, we have started, really. Don't tell anyone. But we're starting recording already on Series 2. Yes, we are. So, we know, we're ahead of the game in that. So, yeah, like we said, you can listen to the rest of the series. Just go back and listen to us on Google Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Anchor, anywhere you get your podcasts from. Go and have a listen. Give us a little rating. A review would be yeah, lovely. Yeah, a review would be really nice. Yeah, that would yeah. be lovely. Um, give us a little hello on Twitter. Say hello. Yep. Or, you know, follow us on Instagram and we'll we'll do some send some pictures and stuff out on instagram and yeah if you want to drop us an email if you want to be a guest on series well probably series three now if you yeah. want to but if you want to be a guest drop us an email let us know that's unequal sequel at hotmail.co.uk no for god's sake <laughs> 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 <sighs> this is just amazing
24 times I've said this now, <laughs> and I still can't get it right. Unequal sequel at hotmail.com. <laughs> and I'm not even going to ask if Dave's going to cut that out because I know nope. for a fact he's going to leave it in. <laughs> Let's sign off. Thank you for listening. We'll see you in November for the return interview episodes. We'll be around for the extra interviews and trailer breakdowns and whatever else happens in the meantime. We'll be around and we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.